Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Think for just a few minutes about how much you interact with technology every day. Of course, there are all of the things that we do for fun, but smartphones, computers, tablets, and more are now essential to how we communicate, how we manage our finances, pay our bills, apply for jobs, make medical appointments, pay for parking, or even attend classes. For many of us, this feels convenient, but it's not easy for everyone. This hour, we're talking about the barriers that new technologies can create. Later in the hour, I'll talk with Neil Getch of Inside Out Reentry Community about how formerly incarcerated people navigate in our high-tech world. And gerontologist Elaine Eshbaugh of the University of Northern Iowa will be here. But we're going to start the hour in the place that many people turn to when they don't have Internet access at home, the public library. Megan Klein-Hewitt is Adult Services Manager at the Ames Public Library. Hello, Megan. Hello. It is wonderful to have you here. And I think a a lot of us get frustrated with technology, and we will definitely do some venting this hour. But most of those frustrations are, are not a big deal. However, the digital divide is very real and can cause serious challenges for some people. I mean, this this problem is about much more than just frustration, right? Yeah, absolutely. The digital divide impacts so many people, even those who have access to technology in their homes, in their everyday life, because it's not just about access. It's about the ability to use those technology tools that you have at hand. And I think that's where people get the most frustrated when they can't make use of the things that they think that they should be able to. Absolutely. Now, of course, there are people we have to uh, acknowledge that when we talk about this frustration, we are coming from a place of privilege when we have access to these devices, because there are people in every community, in all of our communities that really do not have access to these devices, right? Absolutely. When I was working the desk earlier today at the library, so working with the public, more than half of our computers were in use. So that's either folks that don't have access to a desktop computer of their own or uh, don't have a place to access that uh, or maybe just don't have easy access to something. Right. Or and don't I have really Internet telling. access that's easy mm-hmm. to, to use. Yeah. Or very slow Internet access, which right. also becomes a huge barrier sometimes. Um, you also find that the library is a place where people who struggle with technology because of disability come to. Right. Absolutely. We have uh, a lot of folks particularly maybe folks who have experienced traumatic brain injuries who come to the library seeking help. Uh, They can struggle with things like remembering where things are on the computer or when we're talking about public use computers. So all of our computers look exactly the same from one to the other, but they don't necessarily look like the computer they might have at home or the friend's computer that they access. And those things can be problematic for folks who uh, have memory loss issues um, or, or like I said, traumatic brain injuries that just make those sort of short-term memory tasks difficult. Then, of course, there are people who lack the skills or the knowledge to use technology that they may have access to. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the, the people who come to the library for help with that? Absolutely. You know, I think 
when we think about people who don't have access or struggle with struggle with access or are impacted by the digital divide, they're not a monolith. They are everything from I don't know how to use a desktop computer. Or I don't know how to use a mouse. They don't have those sort of baseline technology skills all the way to I have this technology. Maybe I have a Kindle and an iPad and I don't know how to access library materials on one of those devices. So they know how to do everyday things, but they don't know those maybe detailed steps to get them from point A to point B and get out of that frustration zone with technology. You offer classes for people who want to be better with technology. What kind of skills do you teach in those classes? Yeah, that's right. And many public libraries offer technology and computer classes. In Ames, we offer a basic computer skills series. So it's a four class series that starts with how to use a mouse, how to turn on the computer, and gets all the way to how to use email, how to create an email address if you don't already have one. And then we have a second series of classes that covers the Microsoft Office software. So a little bit more advanced, uh, but a good sort of fill in for those who have those baseline skills but need additional skills to get them to the next level. The people who come into the library to use the computers, I'm sure they're doing many different things with those computers. But what are some, can you give me some examples of some of the things that you might be asked to help with? Absolutely. We do a lot of help with filling out forms, whether that be a job application, uh, an application for a, a benefit, perhaps like SNAP or a job insurance, um, all kinds of things along those lines that are much more like everyday necessity sort of things. But you also have folks that, you know, want to make a post on Facebook so that their friends and family can see what's going on in their life. Uh, so it really runs the, the wide variety of, of tasks from like what you would consider to be very vital tasks all the way to sort of more fun or leisurely tasks. And it's worth noting that some of those vital tasks cannot be done any other way. They must be done on computers, you know, whether you're talking about applying for unemployment benefits or veterans benefits or that application for SNAP. I mean, th those are things that y you can't just go to an office and do it now. You have to do it online. Absolutely. And in a lot of cases, if folks do go to the office, they're then getting sent to the public library to seek help and assistance in filling out those forms. And more and more things are ending up online. When the DOT initially moved to all online appointments for renewing driver's licenses, we started seeing a ton of people come in needing help, in a lot of cases needing us to do it for them because they just didn't have the tech skills to complete that online form, which is not super straightforward and necessarily easy for people to understand. And that's what we see a lot of. Well, and you mentioned people who don't have an email address. I mean, to do any of these things, you have to have an email address, don't you? Absolutely. And to get an email address, in most cases, you need a cell phone number uh, because most email providers, especially if you're using a public computer with a shared IP address, require a phone number to verify that you are a human being. You're not spam trying to create an email address on their system. So we experience a lot of folks who maybe don't have a cell phone number, therefore can't set up an email address on our computers, which is incredibly frustrating for both the individual seeking help and the library staff member. Well, how, how can you get around that? Is there a way there are a few email service providers that don't require a phone number to set up that email address. So we try to 
push people towards those. Uh, but they're becoming fewer and farther between, which is a definite challenge. Yeah. So I, I think about all of the services that I have that require two-factor authentication, for example. And of course, most of the time when I log into one of those services, it wants to send a text to my cell phone with the verification code that I then need to put back into the website. Is that a real barrier for a lot of people because if they don't have a cell phone, maybe they can't have two-factor authentication. It's a huge barrier for people. The number of times we walk people through the the process to either try to reset their password or just have to tell them, I'm sorry, there's nothing that we can do, um, which is the last thing that we want to have to tell people. But in a lot of cases, there's really nothing to do. There's not a customer service number or person to contact at these email providers and other online systems to help you work around that. Um, and especially in the case where maybe somebody's lost a cell phone, isn't able to pay the bill and no longer has access to that number, that's that's a really significant barrier for people. Do you feel like this is discriminatory, the way that we have integrated technology into every aspect of living? It definitely makes having a cell phone, having access to a cell phone, having access to an email address, uh, a, it's a really significant barrier for a lot of people. And it definitely verges on discrimination. It's it is setting people up to need something that they can't in all situations provide or have access to. Right. And, and there are a lot of different phone services out there, but it, it's costly almost no matter what service you connect with. It's going to be expensive. And if you're just trying to put food on your table and pay for your rent, a cell phone may feel out of reach. Absolutely. And there are some government sponsored programs that provide some funding there. Um, like the Lifeline program, which provides a discount, but it's still a pretty small discount. Um, it's not going to cover 100% of your phone bill uh, your or your internet bill. So that's a challenge for folks. So we've talked a lot about some very serious issues that can be created by this digital divide. I'm sure that you also deal with a lot of things that, that maybe don't seem so serious. What are some of the the requests that you get that that might make you smile or might be some of the things that we wouldn't think about needing help with? I have helped people respond to uh, party invitations. So party invitations that require an email address to RSVP to. If you don't have an email address, how are you going <laughs> to RSVP to that 50th anniversary party you got invited to? Um, simple things like that. Also helping people connect their personal devices to library services. We don't take that lightly. We take that very seriously. But that's more of a fun task just because we get to sort of sell all of the great things that you can do with a library card. Right. So like if somebody uh, brings in a, an iPad and they want to get books on the iPad or a Kindle or something like that, you're talking about those kind of things. Yeah, exactly. Nice. Um, do you encounter people who are resistant to using technology based on principle who just don't want to learn how to do this? I would say less so on principle. I think in a lot of ways that's sort of generationally passing. I think a lot of folks understand that it's sort of something that they have to buy into conceptually. Uh, but there are folks that just don't want an email address or refuse to get a cell phone. And then they're faced with all of those barriers that we've been discussing. Uh, and that's just a 
unique challenge. You know, we try to work with folks in that situation. So, for example, we have a email address we use for staff use. I might let somebody use that in a pretty innocent sort of context. So let's say responding to a party RSVP um, to get them through that process rather than helping them set up an email address. Sure. But our preference is definitely to help people get those tools uh, so that they can kind of live in the modern day and, and take care of those tasks as they need to. Megan, thank you so much for talking with me. Of course. Thanks for having me. Megan Klein-Hewitt is Adult Services Manager at the Ames Public Library. Today, we're talking about technological barriers in our modern culture. This is Talk of Iowa. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, we're talking about the barriers that new technologies can create for many people and for all of us from time to time. I mean, who hasn't been annoyed by the need to download yet another app just to be able to pay for parking? But for some, these barriers are much more than just a nuisance. However you interact with new technology, whatever your frustrations are, we'd love to hear your stories this hour. You can give us a call at 866-780-9100, or you can email talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. Now, on the more serious side of these frustrations, with me now is Neil Gatch. He is a case manager for Inside Out Reentry Community, a nonprofit that serves people who are returning to life in Johnson County after being incarcerated. Neil, welcome. Thanks for having me on. So first, tell me a little bit about the the clients that you interact with. How do they come to you? Yeah, so um, we uh, obviously, you know, get a lot of people through the kind of general referrals, whether it be, um, you know, people looking up our our website or phone number. But um, the majority of our referrals come through word of mouth. So people that are incarcerated that are familiar with us that kind of spread the word to other people that may be coming back to Johnson County. All right. And so when people come to you, it's your job to help them connect with the resources that they need? Yeah. So as the case manager, I spend a lot of time helping people that are um, back here in Johnson County get connected, um, whether it be finding a job, finding housing, getting connected to to medical care, um, all of the things that you know, need to be restarted after uh, returning from incarceration. And all of the things that you just mentioned in this day and age require access to technology and the skills to navigate it. And I'm sure that the people who come to you have many different backgrounds. Some have been incarcerated for a long time, some for a short time, some have more skills with technology than others. But does this feel for a lot of people like a really big barrier? Um, yeah, it's definitely something I see almost every day that I uh, that I work with people. Um, obviously, like you said, it varies a lot. But, um, you know, even maybe people that have been in for just a couple of years, it's uh, 
we kind of take for granted sometimes how quickly the technological norms change. So. Absolutely. Well, and there seems to be this assumption in our culture now that every single person has a smartphone, which is not true. <laughs> but I, I would guess that's particularly not true for a lot of your clients. Yeah. I mean, usually if you're uh, leaving incarceration, um, unless you have a family or friend that's going to give you a smartphone, that is something that you're going to you know, need to acquire usually pretty quickly, too, because as you said, it's um, it's tied to almost everything um, that we do. So when you're helping people, tell me a little bit about some of the some of the frustrations that you see. I mean, beyond needing a smartphone so that people can contact you, you need an email address. What, what are some of the the places where you see people getting stuck? Yeah, um, obviously, Usually the kind of first thing that people are thinking about is uh, finding a job and getting housing when they return from incarceration. Um, obviously, that is uh, something where technology is more and more integrated into that every day. So um, if you're applying for a job, a lot of times there's going to be a two-step verification to create your account. There's going to be an online skills assessment, something like that. Um, housing is the same way. Um, it's You'd be hard-pressed to... Um, you know, find a landlord that doesn't advertise online nowadays. And it's how the vast majority of us find our housing. So obviously, it's something that um, the people we work with are going to want to tackle. And um, obviously, getting getting a smartphone, getting access to a computer is something that, um, you know, is is going to go hand in hand with trying to find those things. You want your clients to be successful long term. So if they don't have these skills, you need to try to help them acquire these skills. And yet, in some cases, they're, they're really in, a, in an emergency situation. So tell me a little bit about how you balance that, because I'm sure you can sit down and do something for someone, or you can sit down and, and try to teach them how to do it. How do you navigate that? Yeah, it's tough. And that's something that you really have to triage in the moment. Um, because obviously, like you said, I want to empower people to be able to do things for themselves and, you know, to be equipped to face the the next technological hurdle that um, they're going to have. But obviously, if it's a matter of not having a place to stay, um, that's something where, you know, that comes before, um, you know, digital literacy. So it's something that I'm, you know, constantly trying to balance and and balance in a way that's um, good for the right now and good for the long term of the member. I can imagine that there's an emotional component to this as well, a feeling of being overwhelmed or maybe just angry that you even have to interface with the world in this way. Do you see resistance in some people where they're like, I don't understand why I have to do this? Yeah. Um, obviously, um, returning from incarceration is an extremely overwhelming time for people. Um, I think we've all been overwhelmed by technology just in our normal lives. But when you add that on top of, um, you know, uh, trying to restart so many other aspects of your life, um, it it definitely does boil over into frustration. And it's something that, um, you know, anytime you're, um, you know, in a vulnerable situation, the uh, chances of being exploited by technology are higher. Um, obviously, too, if you're somebody that maybe has more publicly available information about them out there than your average person, there's um, a good reason for hesitancy um, when it comes to using technology. Now, a lot of us are in a position where if we have older parents, um, we are tech support for our older parents. Do you find that, that that's the role that you play as time goes on with your clients? 
Yeah, I um, I definitely find myself um, helping with a lot of password changes, two factor signups, that type of stuff, and um, yeah, obviously it's uh, it's kind of a trivial thing, but it's it's one, it's a great help to our members, but two, it's something that can can start a longer conversation about you know skill building and um, you know where they're headed. Given that you help people navigate this increasingly difficult environment, do you feel? like there is an equity issue? Do you feel like our reliance on technology in these public spheres is a barrier for a lot of people? Yeah. And um, I I was actually fortunate enough to participate in the, the state digital equity planning meeting. And obviously, yeah, it's something that affects a lot of different populations um, throughout the state. And, um, you know, technology is only going to become more and more tied to um, you know, tied to our, our life and our successes. So um, it's something that I think we, um, as a society, can't put enough emphasis on. So what are some solutions? How do you make it more equitable, given that these barriers are really hard to clear away? Yeah, um, I guess the there's three things that, that I think about. One is obviously access. So any program that's going to help people um, gain access to technology, whether it be a smartphone, a laptop, a tablet, is is going to be beneficial. Um, also, uh, skill building. So um, there's a lot of education programs out there um, for the population that we work with in particular. I think it can be tough because um, a lot of times, you know, they're very busy people. And so education that can meet people where they're at, I think, is is important, something that you can do. Right. When, your you're, when you're trying <laughs> yeah. to make enough money to feed yourself and, and pay the rent, you don't necessarily have time to, to go to the senior center for a class. Exactly. So, yeah, meeting people where they're at with that stuff, I think, is important. And then also, um, you know, technology education that's kind of practically minded towards the the things that, you know, we all need because, um, yeah, it's one thing to teach somebody how to use a computer. It's another thing to teach somebody how to find housing on a computer. Neil, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. Neil Gatch is case manager at Inside Out Reentry Community. It's a nonprofit that serves people who are returning to life in Johnson County after being incarcerated. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. This hour, we're talking about technological barriers in our modern culture. Some of these barriers are frustrating, but others can cause serious problems. And we would love to hear your stories this hour. You can give us a call at 866-780-9100, 866-780-9100, or send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. And of course, tech barriers can affect people of all ages, but older people do tend to struggle more than young people. Elaine Eshbaugh is a professor of gerontology at the University of Northern Iowa, and she's with us now. Hello, Elaine. Hello. How are you? Good. It is wonderful to have you here. And I, I oh, often, I'm excited. I often think about this. I, I'm, of course, as as many people of my generation are, I play tech support for my parents a lot. But I think about the fact my parents sure. are in their upper 70s. And I think about how radically technology has changed, not just in the last 20 years, but in their lifetimes. And they have been tech savvy people for so long. They were early adopters of computers. Computers, VCRs, all kinds of things. But it, the change is so rapid 
it just becomes really difficult. It, you must encounter that with a lot of people. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I think back to, um, you know, my, my family growing up and um, we had a VCR that we rented from the video store yeah. and we would have the neighbors over to watch a movie and we were like, we were on the cutting edge. I don't know if that would have been like 1985. So, yes, things have, have changed a lot and they've changed very quickly. And, um, you know, I will say some older adults struggle with that. But I recently, um, I was in South Padre Island with a friend of mine in her early 80s. And she was talking about how frustrated she is that older adults don't use Uber more. She doesn't <laughs> understand why they, they don't use Uber. You know, um, and then she really wanted to watch a University of Iowa basketball game. And, you know, we had to find an HDMI cord to hook that up. So, you know, I will say that there is the stereotype that older adults all struggle with technology. Um, but just like younger adults, some of us are better at it than than others. Absolutely. there. It's definitely not a monolith, but it does feel like in some ways the cards are stacked against older adults. I, you know, I'm 49. Yes. And I have a little trouble reading my phone these days, <laughs> you know, like even, yes. even the size of text. And I did increase the size of text on my phone. But, you know, you can only go so far. Same. <laughs> so it does yes. feel like the 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 deck is stacked. Yeah. And, you know, some of that I will say is, you know, with with older adults, um, you know, to learn something new, we have to make an investment. It's an investment of our time and of our mental energy. And sometimes it's smart to make that investment and to really sit down and learn something because it's going to be really beneficial to you and maybe to your family. And sometimes it's like, eh, it's not really worth it. So like for me, an example is my husband is really good with technology and he does things that I don't know how to do. I could probably learn them, but I don't want to invest my time because, you know, I have him. Right. So, you know, that's another thing sometimes as well is, you know, sometimes older adults make a choice not to, you know, not to make that investment in learning something new. And that can also play into the workforce. You know, so we might have someone who is maybe close to retirement age and they're introducing new technologies um, into the workplace. And, you know, they say, you know what, I, I really don't want to take this next step. And I, I really don't feel the need to to learn this. And maybe it's time for me to retire. So it does play a role as well, um, you know, in the workplace for those of us who well, all of us are aging. <laughs> right. Well, we have an email from Megan who says, my mother taught high school for over 40 years, but when they digitized the grade book and kept changing the interface in the name of optimization, uh, she retired. That's not an unusual story to that's hear. That's exactly. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, another thing I do see sometimes in the workplace is, you know, we do have these ageist assumptions. So I have talked to older adults who have said, you know, my workplace implemented this new technology, but no one really wanted to teach me because they thought I was too old and I wouldn't understand. You know, so even there are some internalized ageist assumptions as well. Sometimes sure. it's like, oh, you know, I'm in my 70s. There's no way I could learn to use Zoom. And Older adults, you know, not that it wasn't a struggle, not that it wasn't wasn't challenging, but I saw older adults on the average um, really catch up to some technology during COVID because they were motivated to do so. Because if you wanted to communicate with your grandkids, you had to learn Zoom or you had to FaceTime. So, you know, when older adults are faced with these challenges, 
um, and they're motivated motivated by connecting with family, many times they, they do eventually pick up on these things. Well, and uh, I'm curious, the, the way we learn things, uh, you know, changes over time. And often when I encounter a new technology or a new system that I'm supposed to use and learn, I can learn how to use it. But if I don't use it regularly, then I don't retain <laughs> that knowledge. Correct. It feels like I'm not as good at that as I used to Absolutely. be. Absolutely. Is that something that, that does tend to atrophy as we age? You know, um, there are normal age-related brain changes. So obviously, you know, I, I work a lot in the field of dementia. We have people who have mild cognitive impairment and dementia, which makes makes things even more challenging. But we do have normal age-related change in our brain because, you know, just like your heart isn't quite as strong as you age, you know, your kidneys aren't as strong, like your brain falls into that same category. So we may have to use different types of strategies as we get older, and that's normal. So it might be that you you used to be able to use a technology. Maybe you used it about once a month, and you did it once, and then the next month you sat down, you did it again. Now, maybe what you need to do is you need to get a note card or a sticky note when you do it the first time. You know, give yourself, um, you know, three bullet points to remember that you'll have next month. You know, so that's normal aging is that, you know, maybe it takes us a little longer to figure things out. It doesn't mean we can't figure it out. But also those strategies become much more important as we age. Let's talk about some of the the areas that we encounter these technological changes, because, uh, you know, obviously with smartphones, I mean, some people don't want to have a smartphone. And that is increasingly a, a real liability in our modern culture, because our modern culture is built around the assumption that everybody has a smartphone in their pocket. So I know that that's an area of frustration for people. But I, I feel like we also encounter these frustrations in parts of our lives that don't seem to require <laughs> us to adapt to new technology. I mean, one of one of the examples is watching television. That can be really frustrating for people who have to shift how they interface with a television and to learn how to use streaming services that often require them to log in again and and navigate through a, a menu. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we have three remotes at our house, you know, so it has become more complicated just to just to watch TV. Um, another area I actually see see that in um, is vehicles. So we're trying to make things easier we, ch- we have updated our vehicles in a way that makes things easier. You don't have to put the key in the ignition anymore. In a lot of new vehicles, you just press a button. Well, I just got a new car a couple weeks ago, and I, you know, I, you know, I think I've only told one person this because it's embarrassing. Um, I went somewhere. I actually had to run in and, and run an errand um, at my hairstylist, and I thought I turned the car off, but I didn't. Because you couldn't hear it. <laughs> exactly. Right, so we're, we're, we're gonna trying have, to make it easier. Right. We're going to have to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. We are talking about some of the challenges created by our high tech culture today. We'd love for you to join the conversation. You can call us 866-780-9100. You can send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. Elaine Eshbaugh, professor of gerontology at the University of Northern Iowa, is with me. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, 
fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, we are talking about technological barriers in our modern culture. Some of these tech barriers are frustrating, annoying. I'm tired of downloading parking apps, for example. But others can cause serious problems. And we would love to hear from you this hour. Tell us your experiences. You can also ask questions. You can call 866-780-9100, 866-780-9100, or send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. Elaine Eshbaugh is here with me today. She's professor of gerontology at the University of Northern Iowa. And I I want to get to the phones. Chris is on the line in Des Moines. Hi, Chris. Hi, Charity. Hi. What would you like to talk about? Um, you know, I'd like to talk about a couple things. One, when I when I listened to your your folks that you had on, you know, the, I I can almost uh, split. And, and before I go on, I I am I will be seventy five next month, and I'm uh, still working in my own business. Uh, technology has come our way, and I've been a, a um, non or late adopter. But one of the things that I've noticed to, to do anything, I, I ask people, my people that, that work for me or work with me, they show me how to do stuff. And there's no, you know, after the third click, I'm lost. And then, and then I don't do it enough. You know, if they take me through it, and even if I make notes, I may do it once, once a day, once a day, or once a week, or twice a week. Right. So it's cost on me. You know, and and so that's how to do things. You know, I understand basic email, possibly, and 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 looking things up on Google and and that sort of thing. But I shy away from it, almost to the point where I look at it like, where is our Tom modern Tom Harkin, who? He came up with the American Disability Act to accommodate people who had disabilities. So I view this as a disability. And and we should have um, some systems or whatever to accommodate. Now, maybe, maybe artificial intelligence and a Siri type thing, I could verbalize what I want to do and then it would do it for me. Well, Chris, those are all mm. such important points. And uh, Elaine, why don't why don't you um, respond? I, I think you know yeah. it, this really does feel discriminatory. Yeah, and I think really the key, and and actually, Charity, um, you know, IPR just did something that that demonstrates this. The key is options. So you gave a phone number for people to call in, and you gave an email. So you know, you we've had one person who emailed in, you know, and then we had we had Chris who called in. Well, there's an option, you know, and I think what we need to keep in mind is that people deserve options. And, you know, I think some of the digital stuff, you know, maybe there's no phone number. Um, you know, it is discriminatory, but you, you have to keep in mind, too, that there are people who might have hearing impairments. They prefer to do email, do their contact online. But then you have people who, um, you know, are adverse to technology um, or they may have other site issues, whatever it may be, and they may just want to talk to a person. So what I like is if, you know, I, I, I may be looking at a service and I have options for how to contact them. Um, and you don't get that as much anymore. 
you just you just don't get that the way that you used to the opportunity to connect with a human being to help help you solve your problem. Well, and it sometimes feels like finding even if there is a phone number, finding that phone number because they a lot of companies yes. really don't want you to call it. Finding the phone yep. number is a barrier in and of itself because it's buried yes. so deeply on a website. And if you don't oh, yeah. have access or don't feel competent online, you can't find that number. Yes. And then you're going to call the number and they're going to give you six options. Press one if, and you listen to these six options. And then by the sixth one, you're like, wait, was I number three? Should I be pressing number five? Right. You know, can I just talk to a person? So sometimes we even give up on that. Well, and and Chris also brings up the the fact that, you know, there are tools that are designed to make this kind of interface easier. There's, of course, a barrier there because of cost for a lot of people. But also then you have to learn how to use those tools. Yeah. I mean, so Alexa, Siri can be great options for for older adults. Um, so, you know, Alexa, turn down the temperature. So um, oftentimes if we can get someone set up with that and they can learn how to interact with that system, they may not have to learn how to interact with the systems kind of underneath it. So that can be very helpful. Um, and again, you know, I do work with people who have mild cognitive impairment, impairment and dementia. And Alexa, it's kind of interesting because many times people just you know, at the beginning of, of dementia, they might find this really helpful to ask Alexa questions and ask Alexa to do things. But then sometimes uh, later on, they might hear a voice in their home and mm-hmm. be very confused or scared, um, you know, because someone's there and they, they don't see that person. So, you know, different technologies work at different, you know, stages of, of the aging process. But, you know, some of those tools can can be fantastic for those who you know, maybe are confused by other aspects of technology. Gary sent us an email. He said, I do not have a cell phone. I never have. I never will. I do have accounts, Gmail and Yahoo. In a more trusting age, I had no problem establishing these accounts. Now Google insists on two-factor verification. I was Uh, able to verify my ID with Gmail by having Google send a recovery code to my recovery account. I actually have two Gmail accounts, one I use most every day and the other that I haven't used for a long time. I tried to log on to the seldom used account and was asked to verify my identity. I went to the process of asking for a recovery code to be sent to the recovery account, but Google wasn't done with me. They asked for a phone number and will not let me pass without one. This seems like a major bar to my liberty. If I acquired a cell phone... I would only have it for a few minutes. A phone is like gloves, which I frequently have to lay down and promptly forget. And except for verifying my ID, I have no need for a cell phone. Well, so here's the issue. Um, You could use, you know, if you have a family member who has a cell phone, you can use that number. But every time you do the two-factor verification, you'd have to call them and get the number. Right. Within a limited period of time. Right, right. So actually, you know, I will commend Gary here. So for not having a cell phone, just to get to this point and explain this, Gary is very well versed in technology um, uh, by learning through this process. But yes, I, I completely agree with that, you know, and just to get anything done without having a cell phone and having that phone number, I, I just don't know at this point how you really can function without being kind of detached from society, 
kind of off the grid. Like you almost have to make that choice. Yeah. Yes. And and Gary seems committed to that choice, which is understandable. And as someone who answered two emails during that, you know, commercial break on my phone, like, I'm a little bit jealous, Gary. There are times I just want to throw mine in the river. So good for you. Uh, Lynn in Iowa City brings up what I think is a really interesting and serious issue. She says, I can see where people without computer access would have a lot of difficulty accessing their medical records or contacting providers since so much medical information is online. And there's so much more information that we now have access to because of technology. Again, there's that convenience factor. Mm -hmm. There's that access factor for people that it's working for. But also, increasingly, medical practices are depending on that online interface to take care of a lot of the day-to-day work that they've had, you know, people answering phones to do for years. Yes, absolutely. And I I will um, disclose that I'm kind of a, I have been a frequent flyer at Mayo. I've had three back surgeries and I have a a spinal cord stimulator. So I've spent some time up there. And in kind of just overhearing these conversations as people check out of of the, you know, a a specialist office, oftentimes the conversation ends with, it'll be on your portal. Yeah. And I will tell you that as a gerontologist, I kind of lean into these situations. So I think I've helped about four or five older adults at Mayo set up a portal. Um, Because to exist in that system, you need that. It tells you where to be and where to go. And obviously, Mayo Clinic is a place that serves a lot of older adults, but they make the assumption that you've got the portal. It's going to show up on your portal. Um, that's how you know when your next appointment is, and that's how you know your test results. Right. Um, and, you know, it is it is a situation where, you know, you are left behind, and it is a barrier to your medical care to expect that you're going to get these messages online and re- respond to them. Like, if you are not able to use that portal, I don't know. Yeah. Well, and, and of course, password management is something that I think all of us of any age oh, struggle gosh. with. But with Ugh. those portals, that is particularly difficult because, of course, this is private information. And they do a pretty good job protecting it, but often they from protect us. it from us, too. <laughs> right. Right. 100 percent agree. Yeah. Uh, and. Let's go yeah. back to the phones. David is on the line in Illinois. Hi, David. Hello. Hi. What would you like to talk about? Well, um, just a little my background. I was a machinist and lay, got laid off when I was 51 uh, and actually was told that I wasn't laid off. I was retired, but I couldn't oh. afford to retire at 51. So I went back to school and learned computer-aided design and re-entered the workforce at 52 uh, doing something that was very much computer-related. And, you know, I feel like I'm an analog person in the digital world. And, you know, I I actually liked doing that and, and got used to working with computers. So... In my family, I'm the IT guy, and even more so than my daughter and son-in-law, who are, of course, in their 40s. So Mm -hmm. it's just somehow some people can relate to these computers, and and some people have more trouble with it. Uh, But, 
you know, the the thing about that I heard, you know, people talking about the TV, you know, I've got a couple new TVs and every once in a while they want to update themselves and then you have to figure it out why it's not getting the channels it used to get, you know. Yeah. And 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 it, they they in your 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 cell phone changes settings when it does an update. Yeah. You know. Suddenly and the screen like, looks different. You have to learn it all over again. But well, David, I have I have a question you for you. If you didn't add add yourself, you get new apps that you didn't ask for. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know? True. David, have you felt underestimated in your work because of your age? Well, uh, some of the people I worked with used to have the the a little phrase they would say, you know, old people shouldn't use computers. And then they'd look at me. Oh, and wow. Like, oh, sorry. You know, and, but, uh, you know, a lot of people in my age category were having trouble with computers. And mm-hmm. for some reason, I didn't have as much trouble as some people, but there were things that confused me. And, and some of the IT people would, you know, say, you know, if you can't understand this, you shouldn't be using a computer. Ugh. Well, you know, that's discrimination in itself. Yes. You know. Right. Yes. Yeah. I, I have a lot to say about that as a gerontologist. Um, there is this ageist assumption that older people can't learn technology. And, you know, we all struggle with technology from time to time, and maybe some of us have more challenges as we age. But listening to David talk, if I had the money, I would hire him as my personal tech assistant to follow me around. Um, so, you know, we, we can't make an assumption that just because someone is older, they're not good with computers or they're not good with, with technology. So I'm, I'm really glad he made that point, And um, I greatly object to your coworkers' attitude. Well, not only is it uh, discriminatory, but also, as we've been talking about this entire hour, that's not an option. Saying that old people can't use or shouldn't right. use computers. We live in a culture where we all have to use computers on a regular basis, whether that's the computer in your pocket or another kind of computer. Exactly. Um, I, I know I want to end the hour with a positive story on that note, because we do underestimate a lot of older people. And, uh, you know, we all have the capacity to learn even as we get older. Um, you hired your mother-in-law as a house manager at the Dementia Simulation House in Cedar Falls. Tell me a little and bit about she's that. She's wonderful. Well, um, so my mother-in-law... Um, is actually working with us at the Dementia Simulation House. And she's never really had a job where she had to use a lot of technology. And she is she is helping with our scheduling. She's answering emails. She's learned Excel spreadsheets. And, you know, she's she is really committed to learning. But um, one day I, I said, hey, we're going to have pizza for our group. Can you order pizza? Sure, no problem. Um, so she calls Domino's and they don't answer. And she keeps calling and they don't answer and they don't answer. Which is funny because I forgot you could call and order a pizza because I just do it on the app every single time. I forgot it was a phone. You know, you could even right. do that. So finally, you know, I, I was in another room. I wasn't there. I wasn't helping her. So she she got on her phone and she figured out how to use the app to order pizza. So I had a couple of reflections on that. One is, I guess, Domino's. Most people must just order online because they apparently don't need to answer their phone. Um 
you know, uh, but also she needed to figure something out and she did. And she was very proud of herself. And I think that's a good point to end on, too. It's like when we master something, we feel good about it. You know, so she conquered something in terms of technology and she was pretty darn proud of herself. And that was her win for the day. It it does make you question the decisions in some businesses, though, in the name of convenience, because we, we have also gotten some messages this hour from people saying, I, I no longer eat at Panera because I can't order on the kiosk. You know, there, <laughs> yeah. there, there are decisions being made that are going to exclude some people from participating. So there, there's the r- very real concern about discrimination with people not being able to access benefits and and some necessary um, services. Then Absolutely. there are the convenience things that that some of us may let slide. I mean, this is this is a new frontier in so many ways, isn't it, Elaine? Absolutely, it is. And you know, I I really you know we in what what I do we train businesses and organizations to be dementia friendly and you know that is one of the things that we try to stress is there are people who have cognitive decline who want to go to the grocery store and they want to eat out and and to those individuals you know that that's not an inclusive environment um and that you know it's it's not just that population it's a lot of populations that aren't really in, included in the way that some of these convenience factors are moving forward and you know honestly i think it's really smart for the businesses to think about this in terms of being more inclusive to various groups yes elaine thank you so much for being on the show today of course it's been fun Elaine Eshbaugh is a professor of gerontology at the University of Northern Iowa. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe.